The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 207 Paul's Second Ministerial Journey It was a beautiful morning on the day that Paul and Silas began their journey north and west through Syria toward Cilicia. Paul and Barnabas had invested many hours teaching and counseling the Antioch members after the Jerusalem conference. As soon as the church was stable and thriving again, Paul wanted to strengthen the congregations established while on his first ministerial journey. The congregations in Syria and Cilicia had also been affected by the circumcision question so underhandedly brought into the church at Antioch. Paul wanted to make sure the question was answered thoroughly for them too. He carried the letter from Jerusalem with him so it could be read to the congregations. Having Silas with him on this trip would be an extra benefit to those congregations. He could confirm all the events of the Jerusalem conference. Paul walked briskly. He did everything with boundless energy and full dedication. He was deeply concerned for each of God's people in Syria and Cilicia and was urgent to meet with them. He was driven to encourage and strengthen them. Paul and Silas worked hard to strengthen the brethren throughout Syria and Cilicia. God's people deeply appreciated hearing the letter from Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem. Paul and Silas warned each congregation to beware of any ministers who might come preaching something different from what they taught them, as the circumcision question would likely come up again. Paul likely visited his home city of Tarsus while in Cilicia. He probably had established congregations in this prominent city after fleeing there for safety from the Jews of Jerusalem. Some estimate that he had spent seven to nine years preaching there before Barnabas brought him to Antioch. From Tarsus, Paul and Silas would have traveled north and then southwest to Derbe they spent time confirming the brethren there and then moved on to Lystra. At Lystra, Paul was able to renew his acquaintance with Lois, Eunice, and Timothy. Timothy had matured physically and spiritually since Paul's first visit. He had become a disciple and served the brethren in Lystra and Iconium. The members in Lystra and Iconium gave Paul glowing reports of Timothy's character. Paul spent a lot of time talking to and observing Timothy. He prayed about him. After some time, Paul knew that Jesus Christ wanted to use this young man in his ministry. One day, when Paul was visiting Timothy, his mother and grandmother, 
he looked at Timothy with serious intensity. I would like you to come with me on the rest of my trip to visit the remaining scattered congregations, he said. Timothy's eyes lit up with excitement. I would never pass up such an opportunity, he told Paul. Of course, Paul was thrilled that Timothy wanted to give himself to God's work. That is good news, Paul said. But there is one thing I must require of you before you can come with me. Whatever you need, sir. Timothy answered back without a second thought. Let me explain, Paul said. You know the trouble that was stirred up in the churches over circumcision. Even though God does not require that Gentiles be circumcised to qualify for salvation, I know that you were not circumcised since your Greek father didn't see the need for it. However, the Jews we will be seeing on this trip know your mother is a Jewess and that your father was a Greek. Because of that, I think it best that you get circumcised before we continue our journey. That way, we give the Jews no excuse to reopen the dispute about circumcision. I see the wisdom in that. I personally want to do everything I can to help you strengthen the churches of God. Timothy stated with sincerity. Later, Paul was criticized greatly for requiring Timothy to be circumcised. He had not required that Titus be circumcised before visiting Jerusalem. As soon as Timothy was physically able, Paul and his company continued their journey to the congregations. Paul and Silas faithfully delivered the news of the Jerusalem conference. The number of new members increased daily as they preached God's word. Paul, Silas, and Timothy traveled north toward the provinces of Phrygia and Galatia and visited the church at Pisidian Antioch. When their work there was complete, Paul planned to move into Asia. However, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, forbade Paul from going into that region. Many people from the lost ten tribes of Israel were living in that area, so that part of the work was reserved for Peter to do. When Paul's company came near Mishia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but Christ forbade them to go there as well for the same reason. Paul then continued to lead his company to Troas. Luke joined this journey at Troas and was able to begin recording the history in the book of Acts firsthand. Luke considered it an honor to assist God's apostle. He was also excited to be traveling with the prophet Silas and was eager to learn from him. Silas had proved himself capable of helping Paul with such a strenuous job. Luke worked to keep up with the men as they all walked briskly and urgently. Luke was disheartened when he thought about Paul and Barnabas separating over taking John Mark on the journey. Yet he understood that Paul only wanted fully dedicated men with him as he went from congregation to congregation. John Mark had failed by deserting Paul and Barnabas at Perga. Maybe traveling with Barnabas and Cyprus will give him a chance to prove himself. Luke thought. Time will tell. Paul needed and truly wanted some guidance on where to go next on this journey. 
Paul discussed his concerns with the three men with him. The four men did the only sure thing. They took their problem to God, praying fervently for Jesus Christ to show them his plans for their journey. Then something spectacular happened. During the first night in Troas, Paul was given a stupendous vision. Before him stood a Macedonian, a Greek. He looked at Paul directly. Come over to Macedonia and help us, he called out. Coming out of the vision, Paul was filled with relief and joy. God had given the traveling companions their answer. At the first light of day, Paul rushed to tell the others, Our Lord and Master has called us to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel to them. Let's pack our things and go immediately, he said with elation. Paul and his company purchased passage on a boat sailing directly to the beautiful island of Samothrace and spent a night there. The next day, they arrived at the port city of Neapolis. From there, they traveled to Philippi, the most prominent city of the Roman colony in that part of Macedonia. This was the first time Paul set foot on European soil. They arrived at Philippi several days before the Sabbath of Pentecost weekend. This was exactly 19 years after the first Pentecost for the New Testament church. Now in AD 50, the gospel was to be preached in Europe. On the day of Pentecost, Paul and his companions went out of the city to locate a private place to pray and study. They found a quiet spot near a riverside. At around the same time, a group of women came to the same location, perhaps because there was a designated place, but not a synagogue, for the Jews to assemble and pray on the Sabbath day. Paul and his companions talked with the women. They met Lydia, a woman from the city of Thyatira. She was involved in the fabric trade. She was known for selling the famous purple wool cloth made in Thyatira. Though she was probably a Gentile, she was a pious woman devoted to worshiping the true God. Since Paul had a ready-made audience, he preached the word of God to them. Jesus Christ opened up Lydia's mind to understand Paul's message. She paid close attention to what he said and wanted to commit her life to the way of God. Paul baptized this successful businesswoman and her entire household. Lydia was Paul's first European convert. Since you have made me a disciple of the Lord, I want to invite you and your assistants to take up residence at my villa, she said. That would be a lot to ask of you, Paul answered. I insist, said Lydia. God has richly blessed me with great wealth, and most of my clients are the top Roman officials of this colony. Knowing that you are staying with me might help them be less wary of you. My villa has plenty of space. I have household servants who can attend to your needs. You will have privacy and workspace to help you do your work here in Philippi. Paul could not refuse such an opportunity. On another Sabbath day, as Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke started walking to the riverside to pray, something very disturbing happened. A young servant girl cried out. 
These men are the servants of the Most High God. They announce to you how you can be saved. She kept repeating this saying as she followed them. These men are the servants of the Most High God. They announce to you how you can be saved. This was very irritating to Paul and the others. Paul quickly realized that this young girl was possessed by an evil spirit that enabled her to predict the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. Anytime she saw Paul and the others, she followed them and repeated the same phrase. She did this for many days. Finally, Paul had had enough. One day, when she followed them crying out her worn-out phrase, he turned around and looked her intently in the eyes. In the name of Jesus Christ, I order you to come out of her. He commanded the spirit. The demon quickly went out of her. God's men finally had some relief from the demon's continual ranting. The servant girl's masters, however, were not happy. They realized they could no longer use her to make money. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the local authorities in the public square. These men are Jews! The men shouted before the Roman officials. They are teaching customs that are against our law. We are Roman citizens. We cannot accept these customs or practice them. Likely inspired by demons, the crowd joined in the accusations against Paul and Silas. The city officials took part in the attack, tearing the clothes off Paul and Silas and ordering them to be whipped. After a violent beating, God's men were thrown into prison. The officials ordered the prison guard to lock them up tight. The jailer threw them into the innermost cell of the jail and fastened their feet between heavy logs of wood called stocks. These men were not aware that it was the Almighty God who was behind Paul and Silas, but they would soon find out. After midnight, Paul and Silas began praying and singing hymns to God. Certainly, they had not enjoyed being beaten, but both men knew God had allowed it for a reason. They knew that good would come from their painful trial. The other prisoners listened as they sang and prayed. It was very peaceful and pleasant. Suddenly, there was a loud rumbling. A violent earthquake shook the prison to its foundations. All at once, the doors opened and the chains fell off all the prisoners. Everyone was so stunned, they did not move. The head jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open he thought that the prisoners had escaped. He knew he was going to be in big trouble and would surely be executed. So he pulled out his sword and prepared to kill himself. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. 
Paul shouted. The jailer called out to one of the guards to bring him a light. He fearfully and humbly went into the inner cell to see Paul and Silas. He brought them out of their cell. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He asked. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your family will be saved. Paul and Silas answered. Then they preached the gospel to the prison keeper and his family. Immediately after this, the jailer took Paul and Barnabas to a clean place and washed and dressed the wounds they had received from the whips. Then Paul and Silas baptized the jailer and his whole household. This jailer's name was Stephanus. Paul later wrote that he baptized only Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanus. Crispus and Gaius can be found in other accounts in Acts, so Stephanus must be this jailer. This man became a great example to the church in other ways later. With deep appreciation, the jailer took Paul and Barnabas into his own house and provided them much-needed food. He rejoiced over what God had done for him and his entire household. The next morning, the magistrates of the city sent officials to Stephanus, informing him to let Paul and Silas go. This news made him very happy. He rushed into the prison to tell Paul and Silas. Not so fast, Paul said. We were not found guilty of any crime, yet they whipped us in public. We are Roman citizens. Then they threw us in prison, and now they want to send us away secretly? Absolutely not. The Roman officials themselves must come here and let us out. Stephanus agreed with Paul and took his message to the city officials sent to set the men free. They in turn went back to the city officials. When the officials brought news that the two men they had beaten and imprisoned were Roman citizens, the magistrates were struck with fear. They realized they should have done a better job of judgment on the two men. Humbled, the magistrates rushed to the prison, met with Paul and Silas in the inner cell of the prison, and escorted them out to the light of day. It is our desire that you leave our city, please, they asked. Paul, knowing there was a firm foundation laid for a thriving congregation at Philippi, agreed to depart. There were more cities to visit. They went to Lydia's villa directly from the prison. All the brethren in Philippi came to spend time with God's apostle and prophet and their assistants. Paul and Silas comforted them with some parting words of encouragement and they departed Philippi. Leaving Philippi, Paul, Silas, and Timothy began walking southwest on the famous Egnatian Way, a road built by the Roman Republic. This well-built road connected Italy to Asia. P. 
people still walk on parts of this road today. Paul and his company passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and then came to Thessalonica, which was a chief seaport of ancient Macedonia and an important commercial and military center. There was a synagogue there. Paul likely left Luke in Philippi, so Luke could no longer write the history of this part of the journey firsthand. Until Paul returned to Philippi, Acts 20, verse 6. Paul was also able to spend a short time in Thessalonica. For three Sabbaths, he preached in the synagogue. The scriptures tell us clearly that Christ was required to suffer horribly, die, and be resurrected. Paul told the Jews there, And Jesus of Nazareth, whom I preach to you, is Christ. Some of the Jews believed what Paul and Silas taught. There were also many devout Greeks and chief women among the Jews who believed. However, some Jews did not believe. Just as had happened in other cities, these Jews became envious and set out to destroy the work Paul and Silas were doing. They hired criminally-minded men to spread vicious lies about them. They turned the entire city against God's apostle and prophet. It was so bad that riots broke out in Thessalonica. An angry mob searched the city to find Paul and Silas to do them harm. One of the envious Jews had misinformed the now wild Thessalonians that Paul and Silas were staying with a disciple named Jason. The crowd made an assault on Jason's house, seeking to drive Paul and Silas to the public square. The crowd grew even angrier when they could not find Paul and Silas. They dragged Jason and several other disciples to the rulers of the city. These people and those who are living with them have turned the world upside down. The crowd screamed. Jason supported what these men were teaching against the decrees of Caesar. They say that there is another king named Jesus. This teaching was a threat to the officials, they insisted. The city leaders and other citizens were troubled. They could not allow treasonous teaching that claimed there was any other king but Caesar. The city officials took Jason from the crowd, made him pay a fine, and then let him go. It was clear that Paul and Silas wouldn't be able to accomplish more in this hostile place without delay. That same night, the disciples sent them on their way to Berea. On their first Sabbath in Berea, Paul and Silas went to the synagogue after the readings from the books of Moses and the prophets, the synagogue leader invited Paul to speak to them. These devout Jews were more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica. They opened their minds to fully hear what Paul had to say, but they did not stop there. They searched the scriptures every day to prove that what Paul taught them was true. Many of the Jews believed Paul and Silas. There were also many Greek women and men who also believed. Someone, however, reported back to the Jews in Thessalonica 
that Paul and Silas were having great success in Berea. Those envious Jews were incensed. They came to Berea and stirred up the people against Paul. The threat to Paul was urgent and grave. To ensure his protection, some of the men accompanied him to the sea and took a last-minute voyage to Athens. These kind brethren made sure Paul was safely settled in this famous city. Thus, Paul was without his most trusted companions for a time. Please have Silas and Timothy speed their way to me, Paul commanded his protectors. While waiting for Silas and Timothy, Paul took in the sights of Athens. He knew the city was famous for its literature, architecture, and philosophy. However, it was also full of temples, shrines, altars, and statues of gods. He could not understand how the people of Athens had given themselves over to such faults and evil worship of lifeless stone statues. The art and architecture is stunning, he thought. But all the idolatry is so appalling. How these people need God. On the Sabbath days, he preached about the wanton idolatry to the Jews and the devout persons attending the synagogue. And he told them about Jesus and the resurrection. During the week, he talked about the same things with the Greeks in the marketplace. One day, he drew the attention of two groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. What is this ignorant show-off saying? One philosopher asked another. He seems to be talking about foreign gods, answered the other. These scholars had never heard of Jesus of Nazareth or about people being resurrected from the dead. These two groups of philosophers debated among themselves often about what made life worthwhile, so they were curious about what Paul was teaching. We would like to know what this new teaching is that you are talking about. One philosopher said to God's apostle, Some of the things you say sound strange to us, and we would like to know more about what they really mean, said another. I would consider it an honor to speak with you. Paul answered graciously. They took Paul to Mars Hill, an idolatrous high place in Athens. These philosophers also invited the city council, known as the Areopagus, to hear Paul speak. The people of Athens spent a lot of time telling and hearing strange new things. Paul took a few minutes and silently prayed for God's help to properly handle this open door given to him. When Paul stood up in the center of Mars Hill to speak with this group of important Athenians, God filled him with his Holy Spirit. I see that in every way you Athenians are religious, Paul began. For as I walked through your city and looked at the places where you worship, I found an altar on which was written, To the unknown God. That God which you worship then, even though you do not know it, is whom I now proclaim to you. Paul scanned the faces of all those listening to him. This God whom I proclaim made the world and everything in it. He continued. My God is Lord of heaven and earth. 
and does not live in temples made by human hands, nor does he need anything we can supply, since it is he who gives life and breath and everything else to everyone. From one blood he created all races of people and made them live throughout the whole earth. He decided the exact times and the limits of the places where they would live. Some people in the crowd were paying close attention. Others seemed totally disinterested. God did this so they would look for him and perhaps find him as they felt around for him. Paul stated, Yet God is actually not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Some of the poets in the audience smiled at that comment. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul warned. God has overlooked the times when people did not know him, but now he commands all people everywhere to turn away from their evil ways. Some squirmed in their seats at Paul's growing seriousness. For God has fixed a day in which he will judge the whole world with justice by means of a man he has chosen. Paul proclaimed, He has given proof of this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. When Paul spoke about raising a man from death, some of them mocked him. What? A man being raised from the dead? That is ludicrous. One philosopher said from the crowd, We thought you might have been a really educated man, but not now, yelled out another. Many in the crowd started laughing. <laughs> However, others said, Listen, we want to hear you speak about this again. Despite the mocking, this encounter had clearly been orchestrated and blessed by God. Certain of the Greeks believed and clung to Paul. These included Dionysius, a member of the city council, a woman named Damaris, and others. After Paul finished his work in Athens, he traveled west to Corinth. This was a wealthy commercial city and the capital of the province of Achaia. While it had its core population, it also had a high transient population. Every other year, the city would be flooded with tourists. About five miles east of Corinth was Izmia, literally located on the Isthmus of Corinth, where Olympic-type games were held. This sport complex was managed by the city of Corinth to accommodate all the visiting sports enthusiasts. Tents were used to house travelers instead of permanent housing. Many people attending the games would purchase a tent in Corinth and pitch it at Ismia instead of walking to and from the games. Tent making was a booming business in Corinth. Paul was interested in the games himself and knew quite a lot about athletics. In a letter he wrote to God's people there, he compared aspects of our Christian life to the athletic contests of racing and boxing. This gave them a vivid picture they could relate to. 
He also used the theme of racing in his letter to the Galatians and in his letters to Timothy. Paul had to walk about 50 miles from Athens to Corinth. He likely entered the city through its marketplace. Having been a businessman himself, he quickly realized the wealth and opportunity of the city. He also noticed and despised the temple built in honor of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of fertility. In the marketplace, Paul observed a section of tent makers. Being trained as a tent maker, he was curious to see the newest design in tents. He spotted a friendly looking tent maker and decided to introduce himself. Hello, I am Paul of Tarsus, he said warmly. The tent maker smiled and said, I am Aquila from Pontus. I just moved here from Italy with my wife Priscilla. Emperor Claudius has commanded that all Jews leave Rome. I am also a Jew and a tent maker by trade. I was just in Athens. Paul said, Do you have a place to stay in Corinth? Aquila asked, If not, you are more than welcome to stay with us. This man and his wife loved being hospitable. Paul graciously accepted his offer. For some time, he lived with them and worked with them in tent making. Soon Paul revealed his spiritual occupation, and Aquila and Priscilla became loyal supporters of this apostle to the Gentiles. Eventually, Aquila and Priscilla were baptized. They became a deeply converted couple, a stable team that did much work for God. They had been expelled from Rome shortly after Simon Magus' arrival in Rome and may have enlightened Paul on the sorcerer's wicked deeds in the city. Paul became determined to visit Rome. Paul very much looked forward to Silas and Timothy coming to Corinth, yet he wasted no time waiting for them. As Paul's custom was, he went to the synagogue each Sabbath and persuaded both the Jews and Greeks. By the time Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul was fully engaged in his work at the synagogue. Led by the Holy Spirit, he testified passionately to the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. It did not take long for these Jews to disagree with Paul. On one Sabbath, they insulted Paul and the Word of God. Paul responded with vehemence, shaking his cloak to cast the dust off of it. Your blood be on your own heads, he said. I have warned you, which means I am clean. From now on, I will go only to the Gentiles. Paul left the synagogue. From there, Paul went next door to the house of a Gentile named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. There were other fruits born from Paul's work at the synagogue. Crispus, the synagogue leader, believed on Jesus Christ. His entire house also believed. Many of the Corinthians who had heard Paul believed and were baptized. Still, the blasphemy and insults against God from that day weighed on Paul. That evening, he found himself battling some discouragement. That very night, Jesus Christ appeared to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, he said. Keep on speaking and do not give up, for I am with you. 
No one will be able to harm you, for many in this city are my people. This was great encouragement for Paul. Paul remained in Corinth for another 18 months, preaching and teaching among the Corinthians. With his growing number of assistants, he had ample time to solidify God's church there. During this period in Corinth, Paul thought deeply on all the previous areas he had visited, the congregations he had established, and the saints he had worked with. He was inspired to write letters to them, letters that were later included in the Bible. When Timothy reunited with Paul in Corinth, he was able to give Paul positive news about the Thessalonians. Paul had been able to spend only a short time with them and was concerned for their welfare. He wrote his first letter to them to tell them how happy he was to hear Timothy's report. Of course, this letter also carried instruction and correction for them. The Jews of Corinth looked for any way to disrupt Paul's work, even after he stopped preaching in their synagogue. When a new governor, Galeo, was appointed over Achaia, they took the opportunity to stir up trouble. They began rioting again and dragged Paul before Galeo's judgment seat. This man persuades people to worship God contrary to the law of Moses. They accused Paul to the governor. Paul was about to defend himself when Galeo said, If this were a matter of some evil crime or wrong that had been committed, I might listen to you Jews. However, since it's an internal argument, you yourselves must settle it. I will not be the judge of such things. He drove them out of his court. Like mad dogs, the Greeks grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the court. This violent act did not bother Galeo one bit. Paul stayed in Corinth for a good while longer, but he knew it was time to return to Syrian Antioch. He asked Aquila and Priscilla to join him. Apparently, he left Silas and Timothy behind at Corinth. At the port city of Sanria, he shaved his head since he had taken a vow. This was likely a Nazarite vow, found in number six, which was a common practice at that time, although some early Jewish Christians continued to make such vows. God's people do not follow this practice today. Paul and his devoted assistants boarded a boat and sailed to Ephesus. He entered into a synagogue at Ephesus and spoke with the Jews. They accepted Paul's message and wanted him to stay longer, but he wanted to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. He decided to leave Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus. Paul left Ephesus and sailed to Caesarea. He was able to visit the Jerusalem congregation and then returned to Antioch, completing his second journey. He had spent three years establishing and strengthening the churches of God. However, it would not be long before this highly energetic apostle would return to the congregations he established to learn of their welfare. 
Paul was happiest when he was working hard to strengthen God's people. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.